Why don't we uh, pray together and we'll dig into the scriptures this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thanks for giving us opportunity to, um, to study it, to know it, to consume it. Um, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need your word. We need what you are giving to us today, Jesus. Uh, we are hungry for it. And so we ask that you would speak to us and give us an opportunity to hear directly from you today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I'm excited to be back preaching on 1 Corinthians. I was out the last couple of weeks. Um, We had Preston three weeks ago and then my dad each of the last two weeks. Uh, My dad was joking with me about the passages that I gave him, uh, but I listened to the messages and I thought he did a fantastic job dealing with sexuality and singleness and marriage and divorce and a lot of things that were going on there. Uh, The staff were joking that there will be an anthem baby boom in December after the (laughs) message from last week. If you didn't, if you weren't here, you didn't listen to it, you should go and listen, especially if you're married. It's good. All right. Um... One of the things that did come out as I was listening to uh, the messages from the last couple of weeks is I was reminded of the importance of uh, the context of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.1, that's not our passage for today, but Paul's writing, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and it just reminds us that this church in Corinth, a local church just like us, They had a bunch of questions, like theological, practical questions for an apostle, and they had access to Paul, so they collectively wrote a letter. I mean, can you imagine if we as a church were just kind of wrestling and struggling with stuff, and we said, all right, let's put this together, let's compile this, and let's ask Paul. And so we we rally together, we put a letter together, we, we write it up and send it off, and then Paul answers our letter, and he says, okay, you guys asked me some questions, I'd like to give you some answers. And it just reminded me that, that with this letter in particular, while it is authored by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is the word of God for all people for all time, it's also written to a very specific group of people. And that group of people had very specific issues. And so Paul is really zeroing in on what they were going through. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and we get to look in on this and see what their struggles were, what they were wrestling with, and we can work to draw out of that. Okay, so what do we take from this? What do we understand from this? And so there's a little bit of tension, and we'll even walk in it today. There's a little bit of, atten- of tension of over-applying or under-applying some of these passages as Paul writes them. Because they come with such specificity, we have to understand how do we put that into practice in our life, in our day, and how do we understand that to be something very unique and very specific for that moment, yet that the Holy Spirit put in the scriptures for all time that we would take and learn and understand. So we're going to wrestle through some things today. I think it'll be really, really helpful. If you have your Bibles, go 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 17 through 24. All right, Paul's writing. He says this. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has, was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. All right. Starting point for this passage, uh, the, the biggest theme that you see throughout the entire thing is the word calling. Uh, Paul is talking in a, um, in a big context about marriage and singleness, uh, divorce, uh, remarriage, all of that sexual immorality, sexual purity. He's got this, this ongoing theme, and then 17 through 24 are kind of like a, a unique aside. Like he just pauses for a moment to make sure that we all get this particular thing that he's trying to communicate And so we're going to get into his examples. We'll dig deep into circumcision and slavery. We'll look at why he brings up those examples to make the point that he's making. But first, I want to to talk about a couple of terms that Paul brings up. In the first verse, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. We're going to dig into that concept of assignment. He says, um, Lead the the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This idea of calling is a huge issue in the church. It's one of those things that um, we kind of throw around. Like, I don't really know what God's call is for my life. Uh, Unfortunately, on a leadership level, sometimes we hear it in the negative. We'll ask somebody if they're interested in leading a community group or serving in kids or being on a worship team. I don't really feel called to that ministry. And so there's this idea of calling that we have in our minds, and it's typically connected to something very specific. Like maybe what happened with Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus showed up and said, Paul, Paul, stop persecuting me. That whole idea of Jesus appearing to us and giving us a very specific call on our lives has consumed the church to where now there's a bit of paralysis by analysis where people feel a little bit limited in where they can go and where they can serve until they feel called by God to go and do a certain thing in a certain way. I don't know if you have any experience with that. I don't know if you felt any of that or if any of that has stirred up in you, but I hear it over and over and over again from a leadership role. So I want to take a moment and start by talking about this. This idea of calling, specifically here and many other places in Scripture, is related not to a unique uh, assignment in your life or a unique thing that you are asked to do. It's, it's related to your salvation. That, that you have been called into the kingdom of God. And in that, there is a life that that is expected. There's a calling on your life as a follower of Jesus that every single one of us steps into, 100% of us. You are given the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You are given the great commission, the mandate on your life to go and make disciples of all nations. You are given a new name. You are called sons and daughters of the Most High God. And all of that takes place in the exact same moment. When you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, you are called into his kingdom, you are given a new identity, and you are given a new assignment. 
And that assignment, while I do believe there are some people that have specific calls, in fact, I don't fight people often. I felt called to plant a church. Uh, There are people that feel called to a certain people group or a certain country. There are people that feel called to take the kingdom of God into the business world. There are people that feel called to different things. And I don't don't argue against that and say, oh, no, that's, that's the wrong use of the word calling. I think that's a beautiful thing, and we even see moments where people are called into specific uh, actions or ministries or directions in the scriptures. But if you're sitting there saying, well, I haven't felt called to anything really yet, and you're not being diligent and faithful in the life that God has entrusted to you, then you're missing the point of calling. We're not just to be sitting around and waiting for something to come and be super clear and that's the thing and if I don't run down that road then I'm doing the wrong thing when God has given you a very clear invitation to step into his kingdom and to carry the life of God into the darkness, into the broken places. You have been given an assignment and it is the very people that he has entrusted to you and surrounded you with. It is the very world that you have been placed in, planted in, You have an assignment. You have a calling. And you should carry that and know that. And so I just, I want, that's, that's over and over and over that's in here. Like when you were called, when you were called. And a lot of times when we hear that language of calling, our brain goes to some kind of unique or specific thing after the point of salvation that is what God has for us. And that's not what Paul's getting at at all. He is talking very much about the calling into this life in the kingdom of God. All right. So that being said, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. This concept of assignment and what the Lord expects are huge. Uh, One of the biggest challenges that we face in the church today is comparison. Uh, People that are wanting to walk in righteousness, and in order to do that, they look around them and say, well, that that life is is pretty good, that life is pretty good, I, I should probably follow that person or follow that person, and that's fine. Imitation is okay. Mentoring is okay. But then we get into this place of, well, I'm not righteous because I don't look like that person. Or I'm not faithful because I'm not doing what that person is doing. And that's a place that Paul is getting at right away and saying we need to understand what God expects of each and every one of us. So with that, uh, we're going to use Jesus to help us teach Paul. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to spend time in one of Jesus' parables. And while I'm reading through this, I'm going to read through the whole thing, the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 and on. I want you to think of the concept of uh, only let each one live the life that the Lord has assigned to him. So keep that verse in your mind while we read this parable of the talents. This might be a familiar parable to you. It might be something that you're aware of. Uh, I would love for you to just even hear it with fresh eyes as I read through it. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Exact same verbiage between the five talents and the two talents. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells this parable, and, and what is so clear from this parable, you see it because the five talents and the two talents the wording is the exact same. The, the reward or the, the blessing is the exact same between the person with five talents and the person with two talents. And what we see from that, what we see from Paul, is that the thing that matters to the Lord, the expectation that he has of each person is faithfulness with what's been entrusted to them. And so as you think about this and you look at the, the life that God has given to you or the life that the Lord has assigned to you, and we'll get into the context again. Circumcision, slavery, he's talking about marriage and singleness. He's talking about finding contentment in the life that you have been given and walking in faithfulness with that life. Being diligent to carry what God has entrusted to you and to be good stewards of that to carry that well, to do with what God has given to you everything that you can do with that. See, what's fascinating to me about this is that God knows everything about us, everything. It's so crazy to me that comparison is even a thing in the body of Christ because God knows who you are. He knows how he made you. He knows everything about you from before you were born and then he knit you together in your mother's womb and he has walked with you every hour of your life, every day of your life for as long as you have been alive. There has never been a thought that you've thought that God has not known. There has never been an action that you have performed that God has not seen. He knows you. He knows your physical limitations. He knows your emotional limitations and capacity. He knows your personality. He knows your relationships. He knows your influence. He knows your resources and your finances. He knows all of that. His expectation is not that you would live a successful life based on somebody else's 
talents or resources, but that you would live a faithful life based on what has been given to you. I need you to hear this because when Paul writes and says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, there is a freedom that comes from that. Now, it's not a freedom to be lazy. We'll get into this. It's not a freedom to be lazy and be like, well, this is the life the Lord's given me. It's a freedom to be diligent, but to understand your limitations. To understand that different people have been given different responsibilities or assignments or talents, and they are given at measure according to your ability. And that kind of freaks us out. I think deep down, we're all socialists, right? We all believe, that's a joke, uh, deep down, we all believe that everybody's given the same amount and that we all have to perform with that. But God's looking at us and he's saying, I've made different people differently. You know this. You've met people that have different levels of capacity to handle relationships or emotion or uh, crisis or trauma. You've met people that have the ability to interact with, with new relationships and new people and, and now for the most part, we just stand back and say, oh, well, those are the extroverts and I'm an introvert and we kind of, we deal with it in that way but, but God's looking at it and he's saying, I'm not in this to try and parse out if you should be that person. I want to tell you that what matters to me is you being faithful with the life that I have assigned to you. That's the life that I'm calling you to. That's the life that you're supposed to live. I've got like 18 different messages I want to preach right now, so I'm going to go back to the text, and then we'll kind of walk through it, and we'll get to maybe nine or ten of those 18 in just a few minutes. All right, so here we go. The next four minutes, I'm going to say the word circumcision more than I ever have in my whole life. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. All right, so Paul uses a pretty obscure example to make a much, much bigger point. And this point is actually extremely relevant for our church. And you might be thinking, how? Uh, so Paul's looking at the uncircumcised crew and the circumcised crew. So a little bit about Greco-Roman culture. There was a lot of like nudity. They didn't mind being naked around each other. So they knew when the other person was circumcised or uncircumcised. It was just part of like the bathhouse or part of like the gym or wherever they would be. It was apparent. And what's so strange is that Paul's writing into a situation where people on both sides were struggling with their own condition. So let's talk first about the Jews who were circumcised. So the Jews that were circumcised were, were minorities living in a massive majority Greek-Roman culture, and they were all uncircumcised. And so on their bodies, they carried a mark of being different, of being Jewish, of being separated, of having a different story. Now for Eons that had been a mark of the covenant of God. It had been a mark of a relationship with God that they carried this mark of circumcision. But here they are in this culture and they're starting to question that mark. They, they feel out of place in this Corinthian context. So much so that commentators have found historical evidence that some of the Jews were trying to get surgery to undo their circumcision, to try and appear like a Gentile. And so Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, no, 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 just hold, time out, stop. 
And then you have Gentiles that were uncircumcised that would come to faith in Jesus and they would see this long lineage of a Jewish story, this, this life, this covenant, this relationship, this history, and they felt out of place because they weren't one of those guys that had that story. And so they started to, and there was teaching around, well, first you become a Jew, and then you become a Christian, and circumcision is a part of becoming a Jew. So there were people that would teach that. We see that in Galatians, that circumcision is a part of coming to faith in Jesus. The Jerusalem Council said it's not. Acts chapter 15, no. And so then we have this world where the gospel can be preached to Jew and Gentile alike, and Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, stop. You don't need to change your status. Now, why is that relevant for us? As a leader, I have a very unique perspective on the church. I get different people talking to me about different things. And one of the things that I get often is uh, those of you who are older, and I won't draw the line as to what older is, uh, but those of you who are older come into the church and say, wow, this is a really young church. I don't feel like I fit. And you know that you're older if you've thought that or said that. That's, that'll be the line right there, Okay. <laughs> wow, this is a really young church. I don't feel like I fit. I also hear from young people, okay, yeah, there's some, there's some age here. There's some diversity here. There's some older people. I can find a mentor here. I could, really, I could really grow up into the life. They see the gray hair. They see the age. They see older people, and that's their perspective. Sometimes, even, I don't know if I fit. And it may not be that much older, but they're all married. They all have kids. I'm young, I'm single, I don't feel like I have a place here in the church. So we have old people that feel like they don't have a, a uh, place in the church and young people that feel like they're on the outside looking in. We have married people with kids. Feels like our prime demographic with how many kids are showing up at Anthem Kids on any given Sunday. Married people with kids coming to us and saying, man, I feel like uh, the life of the church is happening without me. I just, you know, we've got kids, they're always sick, I can never, uh, I always feel like I'm on the outside of relationships, like everything is happening without me. Then we have married people without kids that are just like, man, if you don't have kids, what's the point of even being at Anthem Church? It feels like that's like the life of the church. Like just people with kids, that's what they all are. And so they feel like they're on the outside looking in. And you go demographic to demographic, just little groups within the church. Everybody feels like they're on the outside looking in. It's, it's very um, heartbreaking as a, as a leader to see a church that feels like uh, everybody feels like a misfit or a non-fit. But I also say this to encourage you in a couple of ways. One, you're not alone. If you feel like you don't have a place, that's it's more our humanity than I think it is the church. I think you could go to pretty much any church and you might feel the distance between yourself and whatever that ethereal concept of community actually is that you're missing out on. Part of this is you just, just diving in. The other part of it is this. When you look at another group and say, well, I can't because I'm not that. I can't connect like they connect because I don't have that going for me. I can't connect like those people connect because that's not my stage of life. I can't do what all of those people are doing because I have these limitations. Paul's writing and he's saying, that's not the point. God knows who you are he knows everything about your stage of life right now. Everything. 
He knows your financial situation. He knows how much you have to work. He knows why you work nights and weekends. He knows what your soccer team is doing and where you've got to be on any given Sunday morning. He knows why you can't be in community group because you've got this deep, dark secret that if you shared with anybody, it would melt your whole life. He knows everything about you. And he is calling you into life with him as you are, who you are, what you are, where you are, you have a place in his story. So Paul is, I mean, think about the, the famous passages. I think at Galatians maybe 3.20 where it's like, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male, female, barbarian, Scythian. He's like, we're all one in Christ. And he's, it's this big, beautiful thing. Well, here he's getting down to this, this very specific group of people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And he's saying, do you realize that you both wish you were the other? Stop. Those things don't matter. That is besides the point. Whether you are married and has kids is besides the point. Whether you are old or young is besides the point. If you are a person of color or Caucasian, beside the point. If you make under 60K a year or over 60K a year, beside the point. You are the body of Christ. And following God faithfully in your story, that's what matters. And so when he says... For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He's calling us to faithfulness in our skin. Faithfulness in our story, in our life. Nobody else carries your story. Nobody else carries your burdens the way that you carry them. And it would be foolish for you to think that your version of success looks like what somebody else is living. That doesn't, it doesn't work. God is calling you into a life of faithfulness with him. Now, I'll take a moment. We'll get to slaves in just a moment. I'll take a moment and say this. If it sounds like I'm saying you can't look at anybody else's life, I know I mentioned earlier that mentors are okay. Uh, a great example, last week my dad stood up here and preached on, on marriage and sexuality and singleness and he and my mom have been married for 43 years. It's okay if you look at that and say, that's a beautiful marriage. I would like to learn how to be married like that. We've been married 10 years. We've been married 18 years. We've been married 24 years. We've been married whatever. I would, I would like to be, when we're married 43 years, I'd like to be able to say some of the things that they're saying and go some of the places they're going. And it, honestly, there are great things about that. And this is not a message to say you can't look at anybody else's life and learn from it. Paul himself said to both the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's basically saying, look, I'm giving you just a tangible picture. Not that I'm perfect, I'm fallen, I'm the chief of sinners, but I'm following Jesus and, and you can look at me and follow Jesus. It's okay to have pictures of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's a good thing. But when we start to say things like, okay, so the only path to righteousness is being married 43 years going to Nepal four times a year, Ethiopia two times a year, Uganda once a year, uh, being able to stand up in front of everybody and parse the scriptures and preach for 45 minutes or 55 minutes or whatever, uh, counseling young couples. If you start to view them as the benchmark of righteousness and you are not living up, that's when Paul's trying to obliterate that thinking. When you start to view somebody else's capacity, 
somebody else's talent as the benchmark of success for a follower of Jesus and you're not living up because you're not carrying their talent, you're not carrying their assignment, that is where Paul's saying, stop, stop. That's only unhealthy. That's not, there's nothing healthy about that. That's only unhealthy. All it will do is bring disunity to the church if we're constantly looking at somebody else and just saying, if I, if I just had their, if, if I only had resources like that, we're sitting in a community group and you're just like, yeah, if I had a house like this, I could do some real ministry. We think these things and they start to feed into our identity and how we perceive what God asks of us and expects of us. And then we start to think, well, I will never do what they're doing because I can't do X. And, and God's like, well, what is this all about? I have something for you. I have an assignment for you in your skin with your story and your experience and your history and all your scars and all your darkness and all my redemption and all my glory and all of my spiritual gifts and all that I have entrusted to you. I have a story for you. That's what I want. I want you to walk in that faithfulness, not their faithfulness. Do you see how important that is? Okay, the next one, next example is slaves. Paul says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Okay, quick, uh, quick note. Uh, as of right now, we have the worst slave problem in the history of humanity. There are more slaves now than there have ever been in human history. Uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking is at an all-time high. Uh, it outpaces what was going on in the first century. It outpaces what was going on in the uh, African slave trade by ex exponential percentage points. It's, it's atrocious. Like, it's absolute injustice. What took place 200 years ago with the African slave trade, taking people from their homes, enslaving them, putting them in chains, bringing them to a different land, forcing them into labor, uh, bearing children, doing work, absolute injustice. As Paul's writing, I want to make sure, I don't want to try and like flower up first century slavery, but it was different. Some people have tried to use this passage to try and justify slavery to some extent and just say, well, look, you know, as Christians, we're just, we're just supposed to be fine with slavery. Paul's looking at this particular system in this particular moment and it does it does carry a very different kind of note so let me tell you about first century slavery it was not pretty but it was different <laughs> it was not based on race at all you could be a jew or a gentile you could be a roman citizen and you could be enslaved uh, because it was a bond servanthood it was a indentured servant kind of relationship where if you could not pay off your debts then you would go to work as a bond servant as a slave until you could pay down that debt and earn back your freedom they were absolutely mistreated uh, they were absolutely mistreated sexually they were slaves were not it was not a pretty situation so i'm not trying to make it so that oh that was different this is it was bad but Paul was writing into a situation where at this point Christianity was maybe 30,000 people. This is the early days of the gospel taking shape and it does, it takes over and it brings massive societal reform in many ways and then we take huge steps back and massive societal reform in many ways and huge steps back and on and on throughout history. But in this moment, Paul's goal is not to subvert the Roman Empire and say, let's overthrow this, this slavery concept. In this moment, 
where the church is at. Paul's writing into every given situation and he's saying, this is a moment for you to shine for the gospel in your current context rather than to run out on your current context. An example of this, uh, Onesimus in uh, the book of Philemon or Philemon, if you're French. Um, <laughs> Philemon uh, was a, a master, was a slave owner and Onesimus was a slave who ran away. In his running away, he ran, into, uh, he ran into Paul, and Paul led him to Christ. And as a part of his discipleship, he sent Onesimus back to his master. Now, he sent him with a letter. Uh, basically, a letter saying, as a follower of Jesus, Philemon, you should release Onesimus. But his, his message to Onesimus was, as a follower of Jesus, Onesimus, you should go back and be the best slave that exists on the planet. And the call is not for Onesimus to demand of Philemon, hey, you should set me free. You're a follower of Jesus. You should, you should, you should. He's saying, Onesimus, this is your call. This is your assignment. But to uh, Philemon, there's a different call. If grace has entered into your life, if there's a story of faith in you, release Onesimus into my care. So I bring that up because Paul's writing He says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. So I want you to think about this. Somebody gives their life to Jesus and the message is you are free in Christ and the guy says, all right, whatever my worldly obligations were, I'm out. So think about this in terms of like your student debt. You give your life to Jesus. Do you get to walk out on your student debt? That would be so wonderful. (laughs) All right. Uh, Think about military service. You're in the military. You give your life to Jesus. Do you get to go AWOL and just walk out on on your... uh, your service. No. A work contract. You give your life to Jesus. Do you just get to bail on whatever work contract? Paul's basically writing to the Corinthians and saying, we live in two worlds. When we give our lives to Jesus, our eternity is transformed. Our, our inner man is transformed. We are being renewed daily into the image of Christ. It is a, it is a new creation. But the world that we live in is still the world that is around us and we have to engage that world faithfully. We have to walk in a world of unbelievers and we have to bring the gospel of Jesus into that world and we don't do that by running away from that world. We do that by faithfully living among that world, living in that world. So I just want you to hear Paul's call to say, take what God is putting in you and go back in. Now, he does say this. He says, uh, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And later he'll say, you're bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So there's Paul's commentary on slavery. Don't get into debt and become one of those slaves. And if you can get yourself out of it, do it immediately. The goal is not to unnecessarily stay in slavery, but he is saying, don't run away from it if that's what your assignment is right now. If that's the condition of your life, do it faithfully, do it well. Then he comes to this place where he's talking to a church. Again, imagine a local church like this where uh, half the room was enslaved and half the room was masters. Okay, so just picture a church where there's that kind of diversity and Paul writes to them and he says to the one side of the room, for he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman. So he's looking at the slaves and he's like, you are free in Christ. 
That is your story. You have been released from bondage to Satan, sin, and death. You are truly free. And then he looks over at the masters and he says, and you, when you gave your lives to Jesus, you put yourself in chains to Christ. You said, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is not my life anymore. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is your life, Jesus. It does not belong to me anymore. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So to the slaves, he says, you're free. And to the masters, he says, you're slaves. That's the kind of diversity that Paul is bringing in. The story is not about your physical, earthly condition but what you understand to be true about who you are in Christ, that is what Paul is getting at with this church. Let's take it back very briefly to the bigger context of marriage and singleness. What my dad shared last week, if you're married and you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean you bail on your marriage and go find that that freedom to serve the kingdom. If you're single, it doesn't mean that you have to run off and get married right away to be validated as a follower of Jesus. And what's crazy is same thing. We have these conversations. We have tons of married people that wish they were single. And I know that sounds weird and I'm not even trying to make a joke with that, although it sounded very jokey. Uh, Married people who wish that they were single, some even for kingdom purposes. Like, man, I got married, but if I I didn't have my wife and my kids, I I could do a lot more for the kingdom of God. If I didn't have my husband and my kids, I could do a lot more for the kingdom of God or just my husband or just my wife. And then we have single people that almost can't function without a a spouse. They just want so badly to find marriage and to find their identity in that. And there's, there's sort of a moment to just say, just stop for a moment. Stop for a moment. Paul's mandate is not that whatever you are when you give your life to Jesus, stay there. He's just saying, you don't need the other way to validate your faith. If you're single, you don't need a spouse, to validate your faith. You have potency and power and contribution for the kingdom of God as you are in your flesh. You bring value and purpose and and greatness to the kingdom. Husband and wife, what you have is beautiful as you are. Even with the limitations that that marriage brings, you you can contribute to the kingdom of God. You have purpose, you have function, You don't need the other to validate your newfound faith. That's the message that Paul is bringing over and over and over and over. So he says to finish it up, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God, or there let him remain with God. I think I'll I'll take a moment and just finish us up by, by saying this. The person that you are, the story, I mean, just think even for a moment, think about your story and where you came from, your family of origin. Those stories are oftentimes filled with uh, beautiful history. It can be filled with dark, nasty scars. You think of all the pieces that had to be in place for you to be born where you were born, to be raised the way that you were raised, to be educated the way that you were educated, to have the jobs that you've had, to meet the person that you've met, the people that you've met, all of those things, that's a part of who you are. You didn't just happen to show up here this morning. 
God is at work in your life. He knows you. He knows your story. He knows your history. Better than you do. You don't even remember some of the things about your own self, and God's like, oh yeah, no. (laughs) If I could show you some video. Yeah, no, we have selective amnesia. That's important, God. I need that to be gone. God knows us, and what he's trying to help us understand is that what he wants from us is faithfulness in our own skin. Now, you can over-apply this, and you can under-apply this. So let's talk about the over-application of a couple of pieces of this. Over-application, you might look at this, and you might just kind of put the freeze on everybody's state. So like what Zoe is doing in Thailand is no longer valid because those kids should stay enslaved because Paul said uh, that you should stay in the condition that you're at when you give your life to Jesus. Not that. That would be an over-application of this. Like absolutely, rescuing kids out of slavery is 100% legit and does not violate anything that Paul is saying here. If you're in an abusive marriage, Uh, and and, uh, to counsel you to step out of that, to find safety from that, to be freed from that. That is not violating Paul. He's not saying to to a a woman or a man that's being physically or sexually or emotionally abused on a a regular basis saying, stay there. That's over-application of this passage. That is not the way to take it. So it's important to understand that there is a way to go too far with what Paul is saying. But let's talk about under-applying this. To underapply this would say if you're in a, an immoral relationship, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or sleeping with them, you're, uh, you're in that kind of a world where maybe you're just uh, kind of stuck in alcoholism or drug addiction and you're just like, all right, I'm supposed to just stay in the condition that I'm in when I gave my life to Jesus. And I want to make sure you understand, like Paul's not talking about morality when he says stay in your condition. He's talking about your status. The call to the follower of Jesus to walk in in deeper holiness, deeper righteousness every day of our lives is absolutely valid all the time. So if you're living in sin, the call always is to get out of that sin, to walk in repentance, to express your grief over your own sin, to go before the living God and say, I need your forgiveness. I repent of my brokenness and I'm turning away from that. That is absolutely the call of God on your life and it doesn't violate 1 Corinthians 7. And it's even okay if you're stuck in sin and you're like, wow, if I, if I weren't sinning like this, if I weren't doing this on a regular basis, if I weren't this kind of a, a person in this kind of a life, I would be so much more effective for the kingdom of God. I'm not here saying, oh, no, no, don't think that. You're fine. That's, no. Yes. It's okay to look on the other side of that and say, on the other side of a, of a sin-filled life, this opportunity to walk in greater faithfulness and effectiveness with Jesus. If you found yourself up against a missional wall, I'm not really leading anybody to Jesus. I'm never really able to encourage anybody or um, the Lord's not really speaking to me. There's not like words for people that I'm getting. I'm just not in that place. If you find yourself in that kind of like a missional wall, that's a great moment to look at your own life. Search me, oh God. Is there anything in me that's sinful that, that needs to be rooted out of me? What am I doing that's not honoring to you in, my, in the way that I live my life morally, righteously, faithfully? So you can under-apply this passage by saying we should all just stay where we're at because God's cool with who we are. 
Somehow I would love to communicate to you at the same time, God knows everything about you. He knows who you are. And while you were still a sinner, Romans 5 eight, Christ died for you. You don't need to earn his affection. You don't need to earn his grace. You don't need to earn his mercy. It is lavished upon you. Any moment of any day, it is freely given. So simultaneously, God loves you as you are and also is coming to you and saying, now walk in true freedom. Walk in true righteousness. Why would you keep on sinning when I've given you freedom from that? Why would you turn back to the things of the world when I've given you the kingdom of God? Come with me and find a different way. So simultaneously hearing God loves you as you are and he wants to change you, those things are not in opposition to each other. They're not contradictions. From your status, from who you are, he has given you your skin, and I use that metaphorically, your life, your personhood, your personality, your emotions, your physicality, all of those things. He's given you that. He's entrusted that to you. Your relationships, your resources, your education, the things that you have, he's entrusted all of that to you. And his assignment on your life is to walk faithfully in the assignment that he's given to you. And then in your inner person, your character, how you live, we are to be growing in Christ-likeness every day of our lives. Last thing I'll say is this. Um, this is just total theory. You can disregard this. This is me. But I believe that as we grow in our Christ-likeness, God actually does uh, open up our capacity for more mission, ministry, service, kingdom. I've seen it time and time and time again where people are just kind of cruising through life, not really ambitious for the kingdom of God, and then something sparks in them, and they, they start to walk in the way of Jesus to experience a growing character and righteousness and God opens up opportunity for them to serve in capacities that they never thought they had. I've seen that, so I think there's a potential for that. But even that is not the goal. Maybe that's why I'm bringing that up. Great things for the kingdom of God is not the goal. I mean, it's kind of, it feels weird even coming out of my mouth. But great things for the kingdom of God as Chris, that's the goal. And what that, what that greatness is that, that God stirs up in you, in your life, with your marriage, with your story, that's the goal. And it's not gonna be Billy Graham's greatness. And it's not gonna be, uh, I could list off a bunch of people, it's not gonna be the greatness of other people. It's gonna be what God's story is in you, in your skin, with faithfulness growing in him. So uh, would you all stand up? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna do an exercise. Erica, you guys can come on up and start getting ready. All right, I want you to take a moment. You can close your eyes for this. I think it's helpful just anytime we try and use our imaginations to close our eyes. I want you to start picturing your assignment, your talent. So in that, I want you to think of your personality, think of your personal history, your family of origin, 
Think of your relationships, husband, wife, kids, parents, uh, friends, coworkers, all of that. Think of your work and your education, your experience. Think of your physicality, the body that you've been given, the, uh, the, the capabilities that you have there, your emotional intelligence, emotional capacity, all of that. Just picture all of what has been entrusted to you. I'll take a minute, kind of do inventory a little bit. Uh, take a moment just to think through that in the quiet of the room. What is it that God has entrusted to you? If you'd put your hands out in front of you kind of like a, like a cup or like a bowl. I just want you to picture all of those things, all of what's been entrusted to you in your hands. That's your talent. You are in the parable of the talents. The master has entrusted to you your personality, your resources, your story, your relationships, your work, your education. He's given all of that to you. And get this, only to you. Nobody else has your same talent. Nobody else has your same story. What does it look like for you to be faithful with what God has entrusted to you? When you think of those things that you carry, what does it look like for you to be faithful with who you are and the story that God is writing in your life? God's expectations of you are not that you would carry somebody else's story, but that you would live faithfully in your own story that you would walk righteously and diligently in your own skin carrying what God has entrusted to you. I'd love to just say a prayer over all of those talents that are being held in this room. Jesus, thank you for what you've entrusted to us. Thank you for the trust that you show. Would we be faithful to be trustworthy? faithful to carry these things well, to be diligent to walk with you and like you into these situations, into these relationships, into these stories, and to carry your life, your good news, your gospel. Jesus, help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted to us because we know you're coming again and we want to be ready to stand confidently behind what we've done with our lives, what we've done with what you've entrusted to us. Lord, help us to be faithful. In your name we pray, amen.